This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast, hosted by physical therapist Johnny Owens. All right. Welcome back to another Owens Recovery Science Podcast. This is your host, Johnny Owens, in COVID lockdown still. I don't know when this is going to drop, but um, I'm, I'm still freaking stuck in my house, cutting my own hair, putting on the COVID-19 pounds, drinking, day drinking at about 11. Um, so yeah, that, that's where we are here. I, I've got a Kyle Kimbrell with me as well. Um, and this is going to be a badass podcast because we've got one of our, our good friends, uh, Matt Tuttle, who's with the Denver Nuggets. I've, I've known Matt since before. He was a real cool hotshot NBA guy um, with the Nuggets, and, and Kyle's known him for a while as well. So um, I can't believe it because we were talking the other day. We haven't done any uh, NBA and blood flow restriction yet. And so Matt's going to break the, break the ice with us and, and, and set the whole world of fire with what's going on. Um, not only right now in basketball and, and kind of what his daily life is like when, when, when life is normal, but also how they're incorporating blood flow restriction into what they do. So Matt Tuttle, let me, what's up, man, before you start, let me, let me just, I don't, I, thanks for sending in no bio, man. Um, no but, uh, yeah. So Matt, his actual title is he's a physical therapist. He's a lead sports scientist for the Denver Nuggets. He's board certified in orthopedics and sports physical therapy. Um, we met when you were in Carolina. You're not from – are you from Carolina? I'm not. I'm originally from Syracuse, New York. I was working in pro soccer when I was down there. Yeah, yeah. So we met, had beers, and you were, you were in, the, you were in the, the soccer world at that time. And were, were you at the fellowship at Duke? Is that where you – So I did my manual therapy fellowship with Evidence in Motion. So I was doing yeah. it uh, with Breakthrough Physical Therapy down there, which is how I got hurt, hooked up with the soccer team, and then doing mm -hmm. some military stuff just by being so close to Fort Bragg. Okay, cool, cool. So yeah, um, EIM, our good friends, um, John Childs, I actually just talked to him the other day. So uh, they're, they're in the COVID struggle like all of us. So Matt, man, thanks. So you're, you're getting ready to move right into the playoffs. It's been a crazy season. Um, how are you hanging in there, man? Oh, wait, no, you're in your underwear at home. You're doing nothing. For sure. Doing, doing a whole bunch of nothing. Uh, yeah. We're trying to stay busy. We're staying in contact with players. But just the lockdown from the league leaves us uh, a bit strapped the way it should be. So whenever this the league gives us a view of what's going on, uh, we look forward to being back. I don't sit very well. I think my wife's sick of me being home and pacing around the house. So can't wait to get back to work. So it's April 17th. When's the last time you were actually with the team? Um, the together? day the league. So the league shut down all practice facilities probably March 15th or 16th was the day that they were just like, hey, we, had, we were working under some confines before that of like one-on-one -on -one workouts, staying distant, one player in the locker room at a time, or one player in the court at the time. So we tried that for about a week. It was pretty challenging, I think, on everybody, especially the coaches and the basketball work. But uh, then the league said, just kind of put a mix on it like everything else, which, again, I, I fully support and understand. Uh, so now we're just we're hanging out at home. It's been probably four or five weeks since I've been into the facility, which is by far the longest time I've been away uh, from the building since I started here and definitely the most time without getting on a plane. Yeah. That's actually a good thing at times. I, I'm yeah. loving missing that. So I guess, man, what everybody wants to know, and we'll uh, we'll let you break it and put it out on social. When's the NBA going to start up again? 
God, I just joking, yeah. man. Just joking. Don't don't go there. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. <laughs> Give up all the secrets. Say all the wrong yeah. things. Yeah. We'll, um, we'll not actually put this out there, Matt. Yeah, all, yeah. <laughs> so are you, tr- are you? Are you? I know you're a big, um, you know, analytics, and, and you do a lot of objective tracking. Are you tracking these guys playing a horse right now? God, um, to make sure would, there's not too much load output. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate the league doing something. Uh, <laughs> this is the sports man. med horse competition. That's what I want to know. <laughs> I want to see Tuttle, Tuttle and Steve Short doing, doing oh, horse. The, the worst thing we could see is me shoot a basketball. I think, <laughs> I think they would fire me if they trying to play basketball. I am not here because of any skill set. Man, I get creative. I, I could do better than some of this stuff I'm watching, man. I mean, a left-handed – you know, free throw, that's what they're calling like a creative horse shot. Yeah, so, it's crazy. Uh, I was, I was so hopeful. Um, you know, I, again, I appreciate the league, like putting something out there because uh, yeah. everybody is starving for it. It's like, yeah, man, at this point, I wonder if it really is just reruns. I'm really looking forward to this Bulls documentary coming out Sunday. I was about to say, dude, I've, I've set up the recording. That's like, yeah. I told my wife, I'm like, okay, I'm, awesome. I've got the TV next week. I'm watching Bulls documentary, like all nonstop. <laughs> yeah. So cool. Um, so yeah, man, so let's, let's kind of start moving into NBA kind of give us a, a rundown of like the day in the life of being on the medical staff in the NBA, what, what kind of injury profiles you deal with, what's your, what's your real kind of pain points that y'all do from the start of the season till the end of the season. Mm-hmm. I mean, you guys are good now. Y'all, you freaking knocked out my spurs last year. Um, which, which kind of, is, I think is going to happen a lot here in the next few years, unfortunately, but, uh, you know, you guys go deep into the playoffs, so you you know you got to deal with stuff. So take me through yeah. that. It's uh, like the day in the life is always an interesting question because so many of the, the days are so variable based on travel and playing three and a half games a week. And, um, so there's a lot of uncertainty, I guess, from day to day. But I always, you know, when this question comes up, talk about game days because it's – I think it gives perspective to people who aren't around the league. Uh, and we do nothing like baseball. Like baseball game days sound like they are uh, – they're a completely different animal, but generally for medical staffs in the NBA, there's a morning shoot around. So we get into the building probably seven or eight, have a group meeting amongst our, like our high performance staff, treatment for players, uh, individual shooting times going on. Then the group session, probably around 10 or 11, you get a few hours off in the afternoon, whether that's to go home, do computer work, squeeze a workout in the middle of the day. And then for a seven o'clock game, we're back in the building around four or four thirty, getting guys ready, going through the pregame process, which is off, often pretty hectic. Game time, uh, just hoping nothing nothing crazy happens, and then trying to be out of the building around ten ten thirty. So total duration of a game day can look at like fifteen hours, but we do get a nice little break in the middle of a few hours to to break it up and get away. I remember I was with you game day last year, um, you know, and thanks for having me. And that was fun. The, you know, the coolest part's always eaten in the, you know, in the, the team players, uh, family and all y'all's family area. You feel like you're some cool guy in there getting the catered food or whatever. But, but yeah, I remember like your docs and you guys were there and just trying to squeeze in a few minutes to talk. I mean, you got players coming in and out and got this problem and this, you know, I got to run out there real fast. So it, it looked yeah. like it's, it's crazy up to the whistle blows. In the, the NBA, uh, we do a nice job of kind of structuring. So if it's three hours until game time, uh, everything goes by the clock. So it's 180 minutes till tip, 120 minutes till tip, 90, 60, right? Like everything's based off of the clock. So 
it's pretty regimented though. Like I know I'm seeing this player from 90 to 70. I'm seeing this player from 70 to 50. Uh, and what their pregame routine is, we try and stay pretty consistent about again, unless there's something like really pressing that we have to focus on uh, to get them to be available or comfortable playing that night. So it it seems really hectic. And then once you're into the routine a little bit, you're like, oh, this is what it is every this is night. What it is. Yeah. 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 Well, so reflect then um, kind of last year, injuries you dealt with or just trying to to keep these horses healthy throughout the year and then kind of what you do as, as the sports scientist there, um, you know, to, to track data, tracking what kind of outputs and inputs are, are going on. For sure. I think the, the easiest way to frame it, because for us, it's so hard. Uh, everybody else is able to talk about big data. And in the NBA, when you have 15 to 17 players in one year, like that hardly deals with kind of a big data set. So there's a, there's a 17-year overview study of NBA injuries that looks at what are kind of your top injuries. So ankles, uh, knees, and back are kind of your top three categories or regions that are injured. So we try and prioritize focusing on those areas. Like if we can mitigate risk, not, I mean, you guys are familiar and all the listeners are familiar. Like we're not preventing anything by just like, by what we do. Injuries are going to happen. Somebody's going to step on a foot. Uh, no, that's not true. You put a BFR cuff on somebody, you do 20 <laughs> minutes of exercise and you, you're not going to tear your ACL. Like we've, we know this. Oh uh, yeah. This they're, is they're established. Perfect. I forgot. I'm science. Come on, yeah, man. Yeah. Golly. <laughs> but, uh, and so like to be able to think about those regions and then what injuries are common at that. So like, especially in the NBA, lateral ankle sprains, patellar tendinopathy, I just, low back soreness, low back pain, and some of the chronic conditions that guys are dealing with because they've been playing basketball since they were five or six years old. And the volume that these guys play ball at is crazy high. So, you know, I think in, in light of that, how do we track that or what metrics do we track? Is it handheld dynamometry and checking force outputs from different regions of the body, uh, accelerometer data from practices, and then the NBA has an optical system in game for tracking XYZ movement. So we can look at total distance, max speed. So some of the forces that are going on their body, hopefully one day we're going to be able to track in game cool. with heart rate and accelerometers like on the players. But for now uh, we can't, which is. Do you have like real time access to that, that camera system? So you could, I mean, it just seems like it would be pretty interesting to see like, man, this guy's really not moving around nearly as quickly where you know because you could do that in baseball you can see a guy's velocity on a, mm -hmm. on a mound right but just curious can you see it real time or is it like after so we time? get it we get it like the next day so the optical system gets all the data like the xyz data uh, and then it's processed and we get it the next morning uh, and we take that data like a lot of teams in the nba do and we run it through uh, the same algorithms that our practice data goes through so we can try and get like as close to an apples to apples comparison of what guys are doing in practice versus what guys are doing in a game. And that's, that's really interesting. And, you know, like I said, I think one day, as you mentioned, those, those like in moment metrics would be really interesting. So I think players like player health is going to push for that. So like, Hey, can we get this stuff in game? And then, you know, it'd be interesting for fans too, like just to be able to conceptualize the game a little bit more on how, athletically gifted these individuals are like how high are they really jumping how fast are they really running what is the change of direction 
So being able to give the fans a little bit more of that, I think would be pretty interesting. And I can see it going that direction. And Just you could be like, on everybody. I want to hear yeah, what, or like, hey, what they're saying. <laughs> why, why, why doesn't this guy run as fast on defense? I mean, he really runs on offense, but it looks like real time. <laughs> really. he's, he's like, he's creeping, man. He's, not, not on our team. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, we, not, we only yeah. have first class players. Never on. happens. Never came up Bill Jabbar in, in airplane. Remember that? You try chasing <laughs> target. Um, yeah, man, that's cool. And so, do you ever get to reflect? You think on that data and say, mm-hmm. "Look, coach, this guy's really off his metric from what we're seeing under the baseline," and and maybe see some reduced load management. Yeah. So, load management has become such a sexy term. Uh, it is. I know. ESPN loves it, and they love writing stories about it. It triggers those guys on ESPN, and they just yeah. lose their minds when you say load management. They have no idea what people right. mean by and that, it. That's what's so hard. And you know, I get it because if I was talking about something outside of sports science and sports medicine, I sound completely unintelligent. Like I don't have a clue what I'm talking about. Uh, so I get it, but it is, there are layers to it. So there's layers of like, is somebody, and we don't, you don't see it in the news, right? Is somebody symptomatic and that's why, you know, they may not be playing that night and it's just being dubbed load management because that's what ESPN wants to call it. And that, that can change stuff. I think for us, it's how do we, because you can't manage the games really. Like I, I stand really firmly behind, we only get 82 games. It's a, it's a ton of games, but we only get 82 of them. So every result is over 1% of your season decided that night. So I don't like, I want all of my players to be available for our coaches to have all the decisions they want to make tactically on any given night. So what can we do on off days to promote recovery, wellness strategies, and, you know, if guys are symptomatic, can we manage symptoms on off days or practice days so that we can then return them for the game? Where, like, in soccer, it was easier. You had one game a week, so you could, like, have undulation throughout the week and get ready to peak for that one game. Right. But the NBA, you could be playing three games in four nights, and now it's just – it's very reactionary. It's what do the metrics tell us? How are they moving? What are they telling us? Right? Those old, like – it's the old PT exam, right? Just like subjective information, objective information, and then what's our assessment and how to deal with it. So what do they tell us? What are our metrics telling us? And then how do we handle it? Or what can we do in the next, sometimes less than 24 hours to have guys ready for the next night? Yeah. I think something that gets really lost in this conversation, you know, because I think we always think of like the Kawhi Leonard's like, oh, it's a loads management night for Kawhi. We're always talking about the big name guys, but um, you know, what gets lost in that conversation is you got to be load managing the guys that are not playing. Like you have to build their chronic load. And so the, your times to do that, or I'm guessing on your off days, I'm, I'm assuming you guys program in accordance with that. For sure. And we, so we plan blocks of the schedule, right? It's pretty easy to like segment the NBA schedule up into pieces. So is it, Hey, this, we've got a high density of games coming up. We're playing, four games and six nights. And now we know on our off days, we're not necessarily like, we can't load the guys up. We can't put them under a barbell. We can't run extra sprints. We, we have to maintain uh, and kind of mitigate loss as opposed to growing during those high density or if travel, if you're traveling two or three time zones in a day or two, like, especially for a lot of the Western conference teams, it's just mitigating the demands on the body. Where in the other sense, like now you can come into an all-star break. And coming out of All-Star break, you might have three or four days where you feel like you can make 
some change, but I mean, you guys know better than I do to make real muscle based change or real physiology change. It takes time. It takes the right volume and the right intensities. And in the NBA in the middle of the season, it's really, really hard to do that. And think that maybe you're doing anything besides mitigating loss. Yeah. It's that fine line, you know, you're, you're between recovery and resiliency, you mm-hmm. know, and, and sometimes if you're not worried about them recovering, how are you building resiliency and how do you build resiliency in, in two days? So that's what you have to do this whole off season. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, that's the interesting thing right now. How are you building resiliency when, when guys are the most they're doing is playing horse. Um, so yeah, that's going to be the, the interesting kind of question moving back for sure. Um, and, and then, you know, NBA post-surgically, it's just, mm-hmm. that's not nearly as big of a deal, obviously, as like football. But last year, I mean, how many average surgeries did you guys see, if any? And I like it probably, probably get yelled at if I spoke to us, even though it's public data. Uh, but uh, like, you don't have sure to, you, but I mean, no, I mean no. just what do you think on an NBA like season? I remember Wallow at the Rockets. I mean, he told me he had two NBA surgeries that entire year, but he had yeah, you have very, NFL. very few of them because uh, yeah. there's, so much of our stuff is chronic and then the acute injuries you know knock on wood for a league wide are generally not catastrophic yeah like yeah. yeah it stinks if you sprain an ankle or you like you have a grade two ankle sprain you're going to be out for a while but like i don't remember the last time that you really hear about like rostrum procedures getting done on yeah. nba athletes like yeah it, yeah is catastrophic as it is when an ACL or a meniscus happens. They're just not frequent in the NBA. Um, yeah. But when you, I mean, you do have them for sure. And yeah. I think the management after that is a little, like it's not, but it, it feels more pressure than being in an outpatient setting just because of the amount of people who are influencing that player or who are interested in the outcomes for that player. And as a clinician, you're like, I just really care about the player. Like my goal is just to get them healthy, the fastest and most responsible way possible. Um, yeah. For me, it's challenging. You can like have 10 people in your ear asking you questions like, Hey man, we don't, we don't have all the answers. Post-surgical stuff is relatively predictable, but I can't give you like, Hey, it's this game. He's going to be back on when we don't really know. Um, and every stage of rehab presents different challenges. And Matt, do you guys, do you handle all that rehab in-house? Do you farm it out some? Does somebody stay back behind to rehab a player? What does that, what does that look like? Let's say a guy tears an ACL. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think we all kind of probably know. It's like, okay, well, if it's like LeBron or somebody like that, they, they probably just have their own team that does it. But, you know, for just a typical NBA player, what's that, what's that look like? Yes, we handle as much in-house as possible. I think it's – the way I think about it is it's like a safety and consistency for the player and a communication amongst our staff. Like we have a really clean line of communication from like, if you were going to break it down, like from the rehab staff to the S and C to our player development and coaching staff, like it, it's easier because everybody's there in house and everybody's super qualified to do what they do. Um, now in the event of like a, a bigger injury, we do leave somebody behind. So especially like, I'm not going to put a guy on crutches onto a plane and fly them to where we're not going to have the same equipment. Cause the whole nother discussion of like what life looks like in a hotel as far as rehab and performance training. Um, you don't have access to the same gym facility that you have at home. So for those acute rehabs, it's easier to keep guys back and keep one, uh, one team, of the, one player that, or God, 
one person from the high performance staff back with them. That said, it then affects all the players that are on the road. So if I normally see A, B, C, and D before a game, and now I'm staying back with a different player, what other stressors does that put on players going through a different routine pregame with a different person? And mm-hmm. there's so many, there's so many layers to think about it. But we, yeah, we'll leave people back uh, if we need to. It's always crazy, you know. Most of the NBA teams stay down at one one hotel here in San Antonio. When I go meet them, you know, they have this makeshift rehab. They use a conference room there at the Hotel Emma, um, you know, and they're they're in there rehabbing these guys on their on their plinths. It's like it's crazy, yeah. man. You, you got this like rolling mini PT clinic, but you, like, you're right, man. All you have is basically tables. I, I'm always happy when I see they have a couple of BFR units in there as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Selfishly, I mean. We're so spoiled, and the, the amount of equipment that we travel with is is amazing to me. Because I think about working in soccer on the road, we were we didn't get the conference room like you could use the gym, <laughs> but you were you were doing any table work, and it was like on the player's bed, which is the hardest way to manip a spine ever created. Yeah, um, yeah. it's impossible. Yeah, we bring four or five tables. We have a trunk full of equipment. I'll plug you guys a little bit because I feel like I have to. We bring four units on the road on every trip. Um, so it it's a heck of a setup. We get the conference room set up. But then at the same time, it's like now our strength coaches are working with guys in hotel gyms. And we stay in some of the nicest hotels in the country, a thousand percent. Some of these hotel gyms are still miles below what the standard should be for NBA athletes. Yeah, yeah crazy okay man so you, you basically then we straddle the line in NBA where it's chronic overuse um and then occasionally an acute what we call instead of high energy lower extremity trauma low energy lower extremity trauma ankle sprain or something like that but still in the NBA season losing a guy for a calf sprain is 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 pretty significant um and then um um, every now and then the devastating, as we saw in the playoffs last year, the Achilles, you know, knock on wood, you don't have to deal with that one, but you, you, that's something that we see. And so then let's, let's start moving in then. Cause I think people want to hear the BFR angle. Um, when I, when I worked with the nuggets, that was a great course, man. Cause it was with the Broncos, the nuggets, the U S Olympic team, um, we're all there. We did a course together. And so, um, you weren't, you, it was right before I think you got with the team, you did, you trained out in Carolina, I think, um, with Zach Long, um, when he was with us. And so they started implementing it. Then you got there and I think you probably really started, you know, implementing it more, but tell us kind of how the implementation has gone there. Some of the rehab aspects, you know, acute injuries, chronic injuries, what you're doing with blood flow restriction in the NBA. So we have, boy, five or six units now, uh, which is an expansion. I think when I got there, we had two or three. So, Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't want to put all of that like, oh, hey, look what I brought to the team. But I think it was just they had had the course right before I got there. I had some knowledge on it and had worked with the units and with professional athletes before. So it's just kind of expanded slowly in that time uh, into how we use it. And now from like an acute injury, so again, lateral ankle sprain is kind of the easy one. If a guy sprains an ankle on like tonight, on a Friday night, and then – Saturday morning, we're trying to get the cuffs on them to get any any sort of physiological response and maintaining muscle mass as we can. Again, especially if it's a higher degree and somebody may be non-weight bearing for a period of time. So that's more the acute. And then on the chronic management, if there's tendon, like if the patellar tendinopathy in the NBA being so common, if we're doing 
like a long duration loading at sub max weight, can we have the cuffs on them at the same time and be getting added benefit to it? And then recently this year, we've, we've jumped more into the IPC and how can we use that as a recovery modality for athletes? And, you know, whether it's using that on its own or can we put a game ready on somebody's ankle and have them, you know, icing and then have the IPC on both legs at the same time and maybe be getting more bang for our buck. So just trying to be creative with how we, how we use that and get athletes to recover faster just with how fast games come at us. And so the tendon piece, you know, that's what everyone always wants to hear. You know, what are you guys doing for tendon? What's going on with tendon? We have tendon studies going on right now. But, um, you know, if you're to say what BFR studies are out there for the tendinopathies, um, nothing yet. Um, we did have a German paper that just came out that showed some pretty nice changes at the tendon, basically equal to high load training. And so when, when you're doing this, so you're primarily with your tendinopathies, you're applying it when you're in that low load phase, mm -hmm. um, just getting a cuff on them at the same time. Yeah. Right. And I think exactly we, how we do it. Yeah. I think we lean on the research in concentric exercise, right? Where it's like, you guys have uh, exercise going on under low load with the cuff on like why can't we do that in an isometric with low load and still stimulating the tissue with the cuff now as far as like the exact science behind it uh and like having research studies to prove it it's hard for us because we just don't we don't have the sample sizes to be able to prove it but i think for us we found we found pretty good success with it and guys are responsive to it yeah and, and then i there's always a question on the tendon stuff from, are we changing the tendon or are we just changing tissue tolerance, right? There's enough research right. out there now to understand that a symptomatic patellar tendon versus an asymptomatic patellar tendon, the structure of the tendon under imaging is still gonna look the same. So right. is there some form of pain gating maybe that's happening uh, locally and then centrally as well because of just the pressure from the cuff and pain pressure threshold too? I, I mean, I don't know if yeah. I have those answers. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we do, and it'll. who knows if we'll ever have the answer of morphologically what, what really needs to change at the tendon. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do love that in the early phase because, um, you know, you're, you're at least getting a couple things. For one, you know, we always had a problem with our tendinopathies, like it fucking hurt. I mean, sorry, Kyle, I cussed. Um, I, I, we're I trying to keep to our rating clean. Uh, on there. I, I can't control uh. it. Um, I watched Ozark <laughs> last night, man. So I'm dropping f bombs all over. Phil's uh, um, been good so far. He hadn't gone. I, yeah, been he's been, I know he's been doing. He's been, yeah, it's total. Don't, wor don't worry about it, man. Drop, <laughs> drop the f bombs. We're fine. Um, but you know, the the ability to at least add some strength. Well, let me go back. It hurts, but then when you're doing BFR, you know what? BFR kind of hurts. The RPE is, is really high, and everyone's like, "Ah, dang, how's your tendon?" And they're like. I don't feel the stupid tendon. I feel this damn cuff and my legs like feels like it's about to explode. Um, which that's good. If you make them focus on that and not their tendon, um, maybe it gets them through that. Maybe it also makes them not just everything they do. They're thinking like, Oh my God, my tendon's going to like rupture on me. I mean, I remember one team, the NBA guy, they had an Achilles rupture. He had an Achilles tendinopathy and the dude was like shell shocked because he saw his teammates like Achilles pop on the, on the floor. And so he, you know, had this, psychosomatic thing that we all know that the people start to develop with it as well so i love that and, and i you're a you're a big pain guy so i'd like to talk touch on the analgesia and, and your pain science side but also 
man, it's nice to also get some strength on hypertrophy during that low load phase. And that's, that was always just like, it's all tendon, just tendon, tendon, loaded, loaded, and then loaded heavy. And it's like, well, I think the muscle could use something out of this as well. And if, and if we can knock that early strength and hypertrophy when we're loading light, maybe we're shedding some time off of this tendinopathy. Um, yeah, I think. That's been what I've looked at. I think that. And then I also think like the benefits of dealing with other, other muscles on that side. So if it's like a right sided patellar tendinopathy, everybody gets so stuck on like, we're just going to deal with the tendon stuff. We have to figure out how to mitigate pain and increase functional tolerance because of that tendon. It's like, well, hang on, we can still load the shit out of the rest of the stuff on that side. Like yeah. Yeah. training gastroxoleus uh, in a position that's not going to stress the, ten the patellar tendon is going to unload it, right? Like what's the first thing to hit the ground and mitigate stress? It's going to be yeah. your, your foot and your gastroxoleus complex coming into contact with the ground. So if you can, if you can use BFR to build up strength hypertrophy around the quad and patellar tendon, and then also training gastroxoleus complex and farther down the chain and obviously up the chain there's enough research on hip and core stuff relative to knee pain uh, sure but using that as a piece to build up is crucial uh, yeah the whole kinetic chain and, and and even the extracellular matrix in the muscle i mean the tendon's stiff at the bone it becomes a more elastic and then you get the muscular tendinous junction you get this interwoven so then you've already got that like okay if this becomes more you know, more cross-sectional area, more pliable. Maybe that helps with, with the shock going onto the tendon all the way through. I mean, at our, at our base, our scientists, the matrix, man, that was, they, they showed that when these guys had chunks of muscle missing, losing the extracellular matrix, that stiffness between the muscle was, was actually huge into taking off the, the entire load that we would see that that muscle could handle. Um, and so, you know, when you're doing BFR, or when you're lifting heavy, you're also, you, you get this response and the ECM actually starts to get bigger and gets a little bit stiffer as well. So I, I think it's pretty cool to be able to address that and not just, I mean, that's the thing. It became just so tendon, 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 load the tendon, don't worry about anything else, tendon, tendon, tendon. You're like, man, it, it freaking hurts and people don't like this program. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. And yeah. especially in this population where like, and, you know, for people who aren't familiar with it, these guys are generally relatively stiff anyway, like a lot of pressure, yeah. athletes, right? Because they can, there is some inherent stiffness that helps with force production and whether like if you're putting force into the ground and you are, you have some stiffness, like what force is coming out in the form of a sprint, in the form of a jump. Um, so anything to build that stiffness too. And yeah, some would argue that's why they get it to begin with, right? I mean, it's like yeah. kind of getting this because they are so stiff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you take that away, I mean, it's amazing the heights these guys can hit with the size of the limbs that they have, you know, in, in comparison to, to looking at other just really large hypertrophy, strong looking limbs, these guys are able off of that stiffness, like a freaking cat, you know, yeah. um, just live off stiffness. It's the changes you see in hockey players, hips uh, with the rotation there or pitchers, shoulders, like, these rotations happen when they're playing these sports at such high capacity for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. Cool stuff, man. And, and so then getting back to the analgesia side, is that something that you search for when you're doing BFR and all, and, and, and we'll just put this out. You, you're a pain science guy. I know you, 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 you lecture on it and I've seen you mm -hmm. conference talks on pain science. So 
kind of give us your whole thoughts on that. And, and obviously BFR is not like, this is all I use for pain science, but is that yeah. an analgesic benefit you're looking for? I, I think so. Uh, locally, again, if we stick with the tendon, like locally relative to the tendon and then the central component that you were kind of touching on too. For me, like if we dumb it down and simplify it, like, how this hurts right and the central component is focused on cuff and pressure there and now you're decreasing fear of tendon pain you're decreasing the stress response to the tendon pain so that i think that makes a difference now whether or not like if we're going to say on a visual analog scale like it has to meet this shift right who knows right that's hard to say but in professional sports as you guys are familiar with like if it's from a my tendon hurts at a four to a three and we can have that athlete feeling like he's slightly more prepared to play tonight, I'm, I'm going to take it 100 times out of 100. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think we do use it there. I think post-surgically it's been really nice in that same position where guys are so concentrated on this hurts, this is inflamed, it's sore, I don't want to move this to my focus is just somewhere else. Like I've just – you can change the focus of the body there. And then there are local – local changes because of it too, right? Like all the hormonal changes and chemical changes at that level, we know have an effect on pain too. Um, right. So without getting like too, too nerdy about it, um, I think you, you have to accept that it's doing something. And if that's your primary goal with that session, then it's fine. Uh, maybe you don't go by a, you know, 30, 15, 15, 15 protocol. Maybe it's just getting the cuff on them for a period of time. Yeah. And getting them to move. Yeah, and I know one NBA team has been really exploring, you know, what's the minimal dose, which will be hard, but to, to maybe, okay, we're in, you know, the, the third round of the playoffs here. This guy, we just need to get him through this, you know, but we don't want to do too much. Uh, maybe BFR is going to be time-based. We're going to do like a 45-second on, barely do anything. Can we get some sort of analgesic benefit? Have Do you guys – have you used it at all kind of in the pregame halftime type? This is an agate injury. Let's just, we know he's, it's not going to hurt him to play, but For it sure. might hurt him if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like the, the uh, sensation of pain, the output of pain. We, we have used it pregame and postgame. Uh, yeah. Again, it probably goes back to where I was talking about before. It's like keeping, keeping the game holy. Uh, like I don't, I don't want to, once the ball, once they are on the court for warmups, like, 20 minutes pregame, like my job is done. It is. Yeah. Step away. Uh, yeah. Like let's let the, I mean, again, I, in obvious situations, our job isn't done, but at that point it is the player's show and the coaches supporting and making decisions tactically. So yeah, we, we've done it pregame. We've used it a lot postgame and guys that have said, so like if you have a chronic injury history and we need to load up, we'll stick on patellar tendon, right? Like you have a history of this. We need to put something into the system but we only have, you know, the one day off in between games. Like, let's do it now because then we can utilize the next day as recovery. Like, we've already put a huge stimulus into your body by playing 25 to 35 minutes of an NBA game. What's 10 more minutes of BFR going to change uh, from, a, from a true load? Like, I hate to say that, like a true mechanical load. Yeah. It's not going to change anything, but from like a physiological response or maybe mitigating some of the muscle damage that occurs during the game, if we can get the cuffs on right after, maybe that's yeah, helpful yeah. to what happens in the next 24 to 36 hours. Yeah, I believe so. And that's where we go back to what's true recovery. You know, when people are like recovery, what is recovery? It's a million things. It's sleep. It's the pain. Um, if you're talking about muscle, what's a, what's a potential stimulus I can add 
that isn't breakdown, right? So all yeah. they did was breakdown during the game, breakdown, breakdown, breakdown. And then if you're saying, I'm going to put this on you, and you know, as far as we know, there's not muscle breakdown. We just had a big editorial piece come out slamming us on one paper that we didn't go into muscle. I won't go into that. But, um, but it, I, I believe there's not really any muscle breakdown we have to worry about. If you get nothing but muscle protein synthesis and anabolic kind of drive to, to make muscle improve, then yeah, man, that's recovery. So the next day, you're, you're, you're hopefully making that protein balance equation more positive. Right, and we understand like from a really hard stimulus to get 100% muscle recovery doesn't happen in 24 or 48 hours. Right. So now if you're playing a back-to-back or even two games in three nights, there's no way for the muscle to be 100% recovered without trying to do something to affect it. So is the utilization of the cup maybe helping mitigate loss? So maybe you're never getting back to 100%, but maybe you're getting to 90% instead. Yeah. Uh, where without the cuff, you would have still been at 75% climbing this curve that takes 72 or 96 hours to get back to 100% recovery. And we just don't have that in an MBA. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, for sure. And, and, and I, I feel really, like I should plug uh, the nutrition side right now and getting in your brisket. Like you got to get in <laughs> your, your daily account of brisket in order to help that reparative stimulus. So I just feel like it has to get plugged in there. So now I got it in. I feel better. Kyle, quit staying the freaking obvious, man. So anyways, going on here. Um, but yeah, it even, is there a, is there a potential um, limitation to muscle breakdown? Um, mm-hmm. So we're not more synthesis, but the curve, you know, is okay. I've got a lot of breakdown happening and that's going to re- reduce my force output the next day because I still have the muscle still trying to recover. Um, you know, there's all these thoughts with IPC potentially that, it has the same protective effect that our IPC it's, it's really our IPC has like to stop cardiac muscle from breaking down. So mm-hmm. that hypoxic event for some reason is protective, um, for organ tissue. I mean, we're even looking at it with the COVID stuff right now is, is it, could it be protective for the lungs? Um, and, and so that protection of the muscle, it might not just be the synthesis, but they have less muscle breakdown. And, and Steven Batterson showed in his paper, there was less creatine kinase, 24, 48, 72 hours later. So if you, if you slowed the breakdown through a pretty high, high hypoxia, um, maybe your guy is closer to hundred percent two days later. Yeah. And we've been, so I guess we've done both, right? We've messed with la, low threshold exercise with the cuffs on post game and then yeah. messed with the IPC uh, post game. And then obviously doing both of them on off days. Uh, Have you seen a trend? Yeah, I would say initially, uh, the first trend was initially the guys just hated. <laughs> yeah. See, Kyle, you're lucky. I almost dropped an F-bomb. Uh, <laughs> they, like, at first it was like, wow, this shit sucks. Because it's mm-hmm. like that, that thing being on at 100% for any duration of time is yeah. miserable. Uh, balls pop out. Yeah, it, it sucks. So, but guys, as they adapted more to that pressure threshold and understanding what it was doing, and we've had pretty good success. I say, you know, on an off day on a roster of 15 to 17 guys, we're getting one to two guys on it a day, which doesn't sound like a lot. But yeah, on an off day when you may not see the entire roster, too, it's, pre- it's pretty good. And what about I, do, you, do you think doing low, a lower pressure with exercise, like 80%, um, do you get better buy-in than a hundred percent lay there IPC? God, it's tough. Um, yeah. 
They're both hard. They're both they're both hard. Uh, yeah. I think we we maybe gotten better compliance with the IPC because yeah. for guys on their off days and understandably so, like they're just gas, man. They're like, dude, yeah. I don't want it. The thought of doing a single leg RDL on an off day for some guys is like, dude, I just played 40 minutes last night. We yeah. got in at three in the morning and now we're here. And it's like, yeah, that's a good point. Lay on the table, put this on. Yeah. And they can still check Tinder while they're on IPC. It's hard to check Tinder when you're doing exercise. <laughs> yeah. oh, so. okay. You can't, you can't yeah. put your cell phone down. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think like you were talking about the pain science stuff. I think some of it, like those moments for guys are so undervalued like that. There's obviously science behind the float tank stuff or like hot tub, cold tub, but anything just to decrease uh, sympathetic drive for guys that play in front of 15,000 fans, travel all the time, have people texting them and screaming at them. And like there's, their drive is always so high. So if you can get them, you know, 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes doing nothing, uh, I think there's added benefit in that piece too. Now, again, we don't have any, high quality validated studies like you guys are working on. But I would say that from a tolerant, like athlete tolerance to activity, they're doing better when we can get the cuffs on them, whether or not it's exercise or IPC. Okay. So a mix. Yeah. And I think that's where we are, you know, on our IPC podcasts and when we talk to the conferences, it's either, either or, but you know, probably if you could do a little exercise, that's going to be better and just, you know, go ahead and use that 80% pressure. Do you, with these guys, when you're starting, do you feel comfortable? Like, okay, we're starting. I'm going to start at 80% LLP, or you go ahead and build it up a little bit. Hell no. Uh, it's the NBA I, player versus yeah, the service member, right? Luckily, yeah. Luckily, I learned that one a little bit more in the clinic or in the yeah. professional soccer before yeah. I got to the NBA, where I had enough uh, athletes and patients before I got here who would curse me out. because so I was like, Oh, hey, 80%. Let's do it. Yeah. This is the most bang for our buck. And they were like, I'm never doing that again. My <laughs> quad was sore the next day. Yeah. Like, I screwed yeah. this up. This is a me yeah. problem. Um, so we'll build it up. And I think we've even tried some of that with the IPC. Like, let, again, are we getting the best bang for our buck? No, but like, maybe we start them at 80%, mm-hmm. do some exercise, shut it down get them back on 80% and let them hang out for a few minutes without the exercise. Cause you're like, you hit it on the head. A little movement's better than nothing. It's why this like recovery cardio, low zone, low heart rate zone stuff is good for the body on these off days. So I'm with you on getting some of the, some of the movement in, uh, but yeah, we've, we've had to build up with guys. And I think almost everybody on the roster now is comfortable when we, when we want to do it, not happy about it, but like, they they'll tolerate it or like you take it out and like I don't want to do that today it's like well we can do it today or tomorrow you get your choice I, I always feel like if you're doing something in rehab and your patient is like oh I don't want to do that you're doing the right thing because if they yeah. like it, it, it it's not you know that's just freaking massage or something you know yeah. so it's like I said threshold. Our, our study our guys did with the rats you know muscle injury if the rats did hardly anything, the muscle just went to crap. It became fibrotic. If we made those little rats start basically sprinting week one after that muscle injury, it regenerated, you know? And if you ask that little rat with his little messed up Achilles, do you want to run or, or calf? He'd be like, hell no, it hurts, man. I want to do that high limb suspension. Just tie my tail up to the cage like the other guy's doing. But, you know, when, when the biopsies looked at it, 
forced in them to do something that was really hard is that's where regeneration comes from. That's where myostatin levels will go down and, and you don't get that fibrotic response, we think. That's where the whole, you know, stem cell pool will start to be activated. And so it's hard. It's a hard sell. I know it's, it's a really hard sell probably in your league compared to, you know, maybe rugby or something. But, um, but yeah, it's, man, if you can get the buy-in, it's worth oh, it. When, once you have the buy-in, it's, and I think it, it speaks to a lot of, uh, you know, if we want to lump BFR in this conversation into like a recovery modality, like, there's a lot of recovery modalities that are not comfortable. Like it is not yeah. fun getting in a cold tub after a game. It is not fun putting the cuffs on immediately post game, especially after a loss. Like they're so getting some buy-in from individuals to uh, to get this stuff done for the betterment of them. Once you've got it, life is a little bit easier. Not much, but definitely easier. <laughs> And so when you're taking them on the road, are you primarily just, is that for post-game type stuff um, or maybe a little analgesic thing, but mm-hmm. that's your main thing or using them post-game yeah, locker room it, type thing, or you, you ever do it like on the flights or. So, and this, this is a good question for you guys. There's always yeah. that caution of like, man, do I want to put a hundred percent occlusion on a guy? Cause like we've, we've talked about it. Like we bring, uh, the Normatec compression boots up on the plane. We have the game readies up on the plane. Like we bring a lot onto the plane because that ends up being two hours a lot of time that we can utilize uh, for athlete recovery. Now we haven't messed with the cuffs on the plane because I just get a little nervous. I'm like, yeah. this like we can do this when we get in, or we can do it before we take off. So in the locker room post game, uh, if you have a guy that's like we've had good success with, say, a guy who's sprained an ankle on night one of a back-to-back, like a low-grade sprain, using it the next morning to mm-hmm. get some movement out of them in hopes of having them available for the following, for like that night. Uh, yeah. And that's where that so, comes That's the, you know, part of it is like, okay, is it really worth it? Do, do we need to get it on that fast? Now, if, you know, and we've talked about it, if there's a real good responder to IPC, you know, like, this guy is like, man, it's it just whatever it is, I'm really responding. And I, and, and, and it's been measured, you know, this, this IPC with these Olympic swimmers. Some of the people that did it, freaking, they were amazing at how well improved their times. Um, and that, that's doing it, you know, like pretty quickly near the event. And so if you have someone like that, yeah, then you got to do this thing. Should I put this on right after a game if, if they're on a plane? it might be worth it. If you're to ask me, like, am I worried about a clot? Um, because I'm at elevation, I'm not. Um, because, you know, there's nothing that we're, we're really worried about that we're, we're increasing, you know, the clotting cascade. We, I don't, we haven't, is the VTE podcast out yet, Kyle? Yes. It is. Okay. Yes. So we just, did one, a giant... <laughs> I had to think about, <laughs> I had to think about yeah. it. Yeah. It went out before the Chanda one. So yeah, it's out. Yeah. yeah. So we just went through all of that. And, and so I, I wouldn't be concerned The the Delphi cusp, which you guys use and pretty much all the teams use, um, they're rated for, for flight. So the calibration and everything. So you're not going to get wacky numbers because you're at elevation. Cause it's the same ones they use when they're air vacuum guys out of theater in war. Um, you know, it's, it, even it's funny, we had the Navy reach out. Could they use these on submarines and, and they haven't been checked <laughs> Um, below sea level um, to see kind of does the calibration hold up. So yeah, it, it, I would only do it if I had someone that's like, man, this guy, he's just such a good responder. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if he sprained an ankle, yeah, I don't need to get a BFR on him like on the plane. So I would wait. It would just be for a performance thing. And, yeah, and that's still, we're still figuring it out. 
and that's where we're still like it's hard to track because there's so many influences on guys from a game to game standpoint or yeah what is affecting performance and fatigue perceived fatigue soreness like all of that is so hard to get a handle on all the inputs to the system and i feel like we do a decent job of it but trying to figure out who you know may or may not be a good responder we lean so heavily on their personal preference that's like i, think, hey, I like it it's like sweet like yeah. where it's not gonna hurt let's do it i think you'd have to and then just let the the clinical trials kind of at least give you like okay i'm doing this and it's not for a dumb reason and if this guy says it's helping me I, yeah you know these studies have shown that mechanistically it does this because yeah dude you can do everything right and and the dude gets a text from his wife who's pissed off right he's going to bed and doesn't sleep and and everything's screwed at that point and, and it wasn't anything you did it's just one of the one of the inputs was jacked up um so cool man um trying to think anything else in particular you want to point out or kyle you have questions that that was my things i wanted to really discuss i just uh i want our listeners to maybe kind of rewind and listen to a couple things, you know, in, in retrospect, because one thing Matt said about getting going with BFR and people had a poor tolerance to it. Now he would kind of ramp up one thing you said, Matt, and you just said it in passing. So I know it's like just kind of ingrained in you and it's true. And it's a quality that I see in high quality clinicians, no matter where they practice, as you said, that's a me problem. You were like, yeah, I, I'm the one that goofed that up. And I looked in the mirror and I figured out, okay, well I can change. Cause you can change you. You can't change that person in front of you. You can only change what you choose to do, but you have to really reflect on your practice and the outcomes of your practice in order to be that. So I really appreciated that. And, and then two, I'd like for our listeners to go back and listen to Johnny when he's talking muscle injury and all of the different physiologic targets that we're really trying to hit. Because I think too often, um, clinicians, whether they be in the physical therapy world, in the athletic training world, or what have you, they are not considering the physiologic responses to injury and what can we do via our exercise interventions to manipulate those. And those are things that we really kind of hammer on in our course. And it's dense and it's kind of tough to understand. But most of the time it comes back to providing an intense exercise stimulus so that you have put the body in an optimal position to repair and regenerate itself and then fueling it with brisket. I want to say on that. (laughs) Not the brisket part. Forget that. The, the dosing part of PT rehab performance, I think is so undervalued uh, of like, when it gets down to just like two primary targets, which is volume and intensity. And then you guys bring in this piece of like, well, we can screw with that a little bit. That's fine. But making sure that you're hitting the right volume and the right intensity metrics for what your goals are um, and understanding how to track that over time. So I just think it gets skipped so frequently. And whether that's from a muscle standpoint for like strength and hypertrophy or from like a cardiovascular loading and like fitness standpoint too we just don't we don't think enough about volume intensity work to rest ratios and why we're using them and when and that that's huge and then understanding on the back end what you're affecting with that because different patients with different diagnosis are going to need certain things at certain times and if you don't have that understanding it's going you're going to shoot yourself in the foot and i 
this whole acute injury thing, the ability now, and that's why I loved, you know, looking kind of deeper into the physiology of what was happening when we were doing BFR, the ability to add a high intensity stimulus without adding high intensity um, is, is really, really kind of this bridge that we never had in rehab. You know, it was never like, yeah, this guy, you know, he's got a pretty significant ankle sprain. He's not going to be able to do hardly shit on that leg. But if you next day you can get a cuff on him and do stuff and he doesn't have to worry about it, it's messing with his ankle. Um, and you get this high intensity type stimulus. I mean, we've seen it over and over again. There's a, a, a real regenerative kind of medicine technique that starts to happen, which is we're just early in it, but this is a beautiful thing in rehab that we never had. We've been in the acute, like, let's wait, let's mother nature do her thing, calm it down. Now we're going to jump on it. And it used to be like, okay, that took a long time. But now it's like, man, there was a lot of detrimental effects that actually happened. Um, not only atrophy, but the whole muscle architecture change, you know, I mean, just the ACL stuff we're seeing now, the bone got osteoporotic, you know, the first three months, like crazy. Um, so I love this acuity and, yeah. and I've never, I've never had this me problem y'all are talking about. So, um, I'll, I'll have to explore that you, more. You need to look in the mirror a little bit more and fix your hair. <laughs> I'm, I'm in okay, California. My, my hair, my, my hair <laughs> freaks me out right now when I look at it. I think building off of Johnny's point to like the contralateral <laughs> loading, whether or not it's with a cuff or without a cuff, um, mm -hmm. in the event of a lower extremity injury, there, there's global effects on the system to... Yep what high load does. So can you load the contralateral limb heavy with a true mechanical stimulus and in the same session do low load BFR training on the symptomatic side uh, or just do low load training across the board and make sure you hit the other side to maybe get a larger effect. Yeah. yeah I true. think the acute injuries and being able to really work somebody hard. Um, I, <laughs> I've had personal experience in clinic with it really knocking people's pain down in, in a huge way. Um, you know, one in particular individual 72 year old guy comes in with a, a quad or a vastus lateralis tear that um, his orthopedic surgeon thought it was a quad tendon tear. Like he had a big old potato in his distal quad. Um, and he ended up in clinic uh, after already having an MRI and, and, and having a follow-up visit with the physician at like 10 days post-injury. he's, I mean, his leg looked horrible. Um, he's barely moving around. And we did one round of long arc quads with two pounds. And he was very, very tired. Barely, I had to assist him with the last about five repetitions. And I was on a Friday night. I didn't get to see him leave because I had to do some other things before he left. And it was the end of the day. He comes back in on Monday. He's walking substantially better. And I'm like, hey man, how are you doing it? Because I'm kind of one of these clinicians, I always felt like people were kind of telling me what I wanted to hear if I didn't really um, ask the question in the right way. And so I always kind of downplay things when I've like observationally picked up on them. So, so I just kind of turned my back to him. And I'm like, Hey, you know, how's things going in my mind? I'm thinking he looks like he's really better. And he's like, Kyle, I have to tell you, I was so much better when I left here and I feel even better today. And all I did was like knock his pain down and he got moving more and he felt comfortable moving more because his pain went away. And the outcome for that guy was remarkable. I won't go into all of it, but um, it, it kind of surprised me. His surgeon was like, dude, what have you been doing? Because you look incredible, and I did not expect this kind of thing. So, so yeah, I think the, the ability to provide a really intense stimulus early on after an injury is extremely powerful. But we need, we need more data to, yeah. to really kind of tell us what's best, you know. And the, like, 
the other one with the cups, right? Like everybody who's used them knows that it is uncomfortable to move under pressure, not necessarily just because the load, but just because like the stiffness and the fullness that it creates. So even in swollen joints, we've had success before too, where like mm-hmm. guys were resistant to moving before because it felt stiff and shitty. And then you take the cuffs on them and once they're done, it's like, oh, they're moving more just because they're used to that sensation. And that makes sense with what we're starting to understand about yeah. pain and kind of fear of movement. We have a surgeon that he really, that's one of his main things is when he's got a stiff, pissed off joint um, post-surgically, he, he really wants them on BFR because he said it seems like those are the ones that really clean up real quick for some reason and they're coming back and they're like, yeah, I'm moving great now. And there's a million things we could probably tap in that's doing that. But, but and, I, and I think what's awesome having so many teams now doing it that we work with we, we learn a lot more on the acute side from you guys. You know, most people in the clinic aren't going to see a hammy and get them the next day um, or an ankle or anything. You know, it's like maybe three, four days later. And a lot of times in the clinic, they're still maybe a little nervous. Like, you know, this is a fresh, you know, injury. Should I put it on this person? I got to worry about all this stuff. And man, I mean, we just hear it over and over from teams. They're, they're, they're pushing the envelope to like, dude, I got it on like, that day I got on first thing in the morning. Um, and that we're learning a lot from that. Yeah. It'd be nice if we could, it's kind of one of the the problems I have with professional sports is we don't, we don't aggregate data amongst teams Mm -hmm. or like the tracking is what league regardless, like not just the NBA, just like what the league dictates or tracks. Yeah. It'd be so cool to be able to, at some point, and I get why teams don't want to, but like, de-identifying data and getting a bigger data set amongst professional sports as a whole. So like your entire data pool is the NFL, the NBA, uh, MLB, and then you can segment stuff out based on type of injury, type of sport, right. what were they doing immediately? Like I get it's not going to happen, right? And like cynics out there, like whatever, you're an idiot. It's not going to happen. But God, it would be so fucking cool to be able to do that. Oh, there it was. Sorry. I, uh, uh, there it was. (laughs) It just flowed right out. Like these, these, like we don't have studies in professional sports because 15 data points doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But data mining, that's probably the only way we could do it is retrospectively go in and just kind of see and and try and pull from that because yeah, set up a randomized trial. I mean, let's get all these teams to agree on what's the protocol after an ankle sprain. I mean, yeah. no one's going to agree. We tried to, to get a, a, a grant in one of the big five power five college um, groups and exactly we couldn't right. get the teams to all agree on the protocol. <laughs> yeah. It was like, no yeah. dude, I don't think that one exercise you think is so important makes that big of a deal. Right. Uh, get the study going. So. Well, and then getting, yeah. I think too, one of the things happened, I don't know if it was that study or another one, but I know another study that, you know, you guys are working on Johnny where it was like, okay, we're okay with randomizing for all of the teams, but not football. <laughs> yeah, It's like, exactly. oh, well, okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That kind of screws it up, you know? You guys get um, swimming, girls lacrosse, yeah, and yeah. Like we're looking at ACL. And we're, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, okay, well, whatever. Cool. Okay, yeah. It's, it's right. so frustrating we, we don't have it. Because now we're making decisions about data that was based in guys that look like the three of us when – there's like, I don't play in the hey, speak for yourself, 
like, like we don't like I am very different than a professional athlete in any sport and uh, how my body responds to stimulus. Cause I've always thought that's interesting is we have all this book work on how guys get stronger, bigger, faster. Like we, we have all the like research studies for it, but then you watch some athletes perform what looks like below a minimally effective dose for six weeks and they come out five or seven pounds heavier with a 2% decrease in body fat. And you're like, how in the, what, that doesn't happen to me. Like I follow everything and I eat right. It just doesn't happen. So like, I'm not saying they're that much different, but something is different uh, yeah. for these athletes that they can, what they can put in the system is fueled or what stimulus is their body responds to and grows off of. Yeah. And that's the, the trend now, especially in, in well-trained athletes, you know, what's the smallest meaningful minimal change um, because significance, you throw that out the window in those groups, you're, you're looking, you're just teasing out, man, if I made this change, um, that's pretty impressive in this person because, um, you know, they're, they're different machines for sure. Yeah. You think about putting five or seven pounds of muscle on a guy who's 25 or 26 and a professional athlete has been doing their sport for years. Like that's a big change. Um, yeah. Yeah. And if they're not lifting it, like the thresholds that we were just talking about, about like, Hey, they have to be 80% of this and this many reps this frequently. Like there's guys that have done it in last and it's trying to figure out why. Yeah. Well, man, this is good stuff, brother. It's good talking with you. It sucks. I don't know when we're going to be out in Denver again, hanging out. Um, hopefully sometime we were supposed to meet up in March. You were going to be in San Antonio and yeah. I had you on my calendar. I think it was the week after this all shut down. Yeah. Happened. And we hadn't, we hadn't been to San Antonio all year. So it makes it, so hopefully um i mean Pat or i know kyle you were supposed to come out here and teach a course pretty soon after that too yeah i was supposed to be there uh right at the end of april early may i was going to speak at that firefighter conference that casey stoneberger was working on they had to cancel that and we had a course set up but with our buddies over at next level in golden um all that got shut down and but we'll make it happen again. I'm, I'm sure yeah. we'll, we're going to, we'll, we'll do it and we'll all, we'll all link up and have some beers. Yeah. So I got a margarita and a taco with your name on it, Tuttle. There we go. I'm in. I can <laughs> skip the brisket. I can do margaritas and tacos. Oh, God. Oh, oh, hey, 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 right. we're, we're done with this, with this crap. Come on. I got brisket getting delivered to my house any minute right now. And it is going down this weekend. We've been doing delivery, delivery food. Too. Yeah. It's, this is well, different, man. I can't wait for like some sense of normalcy. Yeah. We're, doing a, we're doing a orange recovery science internal uh, happy hour at five That's today. Right. So uh, <laughs> except it's it's three o'clock. Kelly told me so. I can't have a drink because <laughs> uh, uh, he's still on the clock. So you can start drinking two hours later, Kyle. <laughs> All right, fellas, uh, that was awesome. Guys, man. Appreciate it, Matt. Stay in touch, brother. Thanks, yeah, Matt. Sure. We'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.